I got Matt Norlander with me. It's been a few days since uh, we last talked, so we have a lot to get to, including uh, Kentucky's bounce-back win over Valpo. Butler's loss at Indiana State that uh, feels a lot like Indiana's loss at Fort Wayne. Uh, Those uh, Indiana powers need to stop playing in-state rivals, it it appears. Washington's 4-4 record um, uh, that looks like it's going to lead to a wasted year uh, from the perspective of college basketball. Uh, of Markel Fultz. We'll get into that a little later on. Xavier uh, lost uh, Wednesday night at Colorado. That's two straight losses in two straight road games. We will get to that a little later on. But I wanted to start with uh, the Duke Blue Devils. I, I watched them on television Tuesday night uh, from the uh, comfort of my couch. Uh, Matt Norlander, you were at Madison Square Garden. Uh, I thought Duke looked awesome in, in what was eventually an 84-74 win over uh, Michael White's Florida Gators. Uh, So that I I never felt like Florida was actually going to win the game, even when Florida made like a little mini run at them. Um, Jason Tatum looked sharp. Luke Kennard looked like a national player of the year. Emil Jefferson, another double-double. I thought we saw a glimpse, and I know you wrote about this as well, of just how scary uh, Duke can be um, when they are operating at this level. And that's still with uh, the you know who a guy who a year ago projected as the number one pick in the NBA draft, Harry Giles. I mean, I thought that was a a, a really impressive performance for Mike Sh- uh, Mike Shashevsky's ball club. Very impressive, and I'm with you. I never thought Florida was in was any real threat to take the game. Uh, the bonkers part was that Tatum, Kennard, and Jefferson alone beat Florida 75 to 74. Um, so in a way, that's I mean, I actually asked I asked Mike White in the postgame presser after I was like, you know, you had a top 10 defense coming in. And in many ways, you did pretty well, like in terms of just like be on man, force him off the bounce to shoot. You did a lot of you did a lot of good things, uh, but they still made, you know, they beat you in other ways. And it was really just three guys. No one else. I mean, Grayson didn't really score. He wasn't shooting, but he was passing. All right. And well, he, took ten, he took 10 shots. He just missed eight of them. Right, exactly. But and so White was like, White didn't realize, uh, and or you know, it wasn't blatantly obvious, but he didn't realize that three guys on Duke had outscored his entire team. But he said that defensively, a, a lot of what they did, like, it, you know, they felt they did well. Just Duke is so freaking loaded, man. And he could not have been more effusive with his praise of of Jefferson, who, by the way, you rightfully have as a top ten player of the year candidate at this point. It's it's bonkers when you look at the talent that Duke has, all these guys, and Jefferson really should be like a five, a number five or number six option on that team. And yet, while Kennard led the team in scoring, I felt Tatum's performance was worth kind of focusing on because it was the second game. He looked really good and then told me afterward that he was actually still pretty winded. He's not in, he's healthy, but he's not in like game shape right now. Um, and yet, amid all that, Jefferson is. He was the reason for most of the first 25, 30 minutes. Just he kept big play after big play, huge rebounds, blocks. He's playing terrifically. And part of what I wrote in the column, GP, is that it's this kind of speaks to college basketball in general. We've got all these teams in the top 10, you know, Indiana, Kentucky, North Carolina, Duke, UCLA. It's only like the third time ever and the first time in more than 20 years 
They've all been Kansas as well. They've all been within the top 10 of the AP poll. That's great for college hoops, undeniably. But because of that, and because we've had some high-profile games, and we had Kansas beating Duke and Indiana beating North Carolina, and you, you know Baylor's off to a really strong start. Villanova's the number one team in the country. Duke has in no way dropped off the radar. I'm not suggesting that in the slightest, but it does feel a little bit like you know we forgot the fact that Duke was the consensus number one team heading into the season. And there was a very valid reason for that. And they're not even fully healthy yet. And you look at what they did against Florida. And Tatum's only going to get better. Grayson's going to get better. I mean, he's just in a slump right now. He's battling a a toe injury a little bit, too. So I think that's affecting him. So let's just remember that when Duke is at full strength, like there is a real legitimate strong debate that no one is going to be in Duke's class, even though you've got all these other teams that are really, really good. On both ends of the floor, in totality, with that talent and experience, that's why we picked Duke number one, because they do have that potential to just be really, I think it could be one of the five best teams Krzyzewski's ever had if they dodge any more injuries and tap into their full potential. I don't disagree with any of that. And and think about it from this perspective. Duke was a consensus number one team in America in the preseason when people thought Luke Kennard was just a guy and Emil Jefferson was just a guy. Think about that. Like, sure. Emil Jefferson and Luke Kennard are just supposed to be good rotation players. That's what they were supposed to be on this team. So you look at Duke now, or let's say let's look at Duke in a month, okay? Let's look at Duke in a month when Harry Giles is presumably in uniform and playing real minutes and Marquise Bolden in uniform playing real minutes. What Duke would have at that, at that moment is the preseason national player of the year. That was Grayson Allen. Um, arguably one of the leading candidates for national player of the year right now, Luke Kennard, another legitimate top 10 candidate right now in Emil Jefferson, plus three lottery picks, depending on what you think of Bolden. If you want to exclude him from the lottery pick conversation, I'm, I'm fine with that. But, but certainly two guys who could go in the top five in Jason Tatum and Harry Giles. I mean, how often do teams have that kind of, you know, college star power plus elite level, um, NBA prospects. I, I know a couple years ago, Kentucky had a loaded roster. Duke had a loaded roster. That's the year Duke won it with Jolly Wokofor, Justice Winslow, uh, Tyus Jones, Quinn Cook. Uh, this Duke roster is so much better than that Duke roster. And uh, when it gets healthy, I mean, I, I don't know what you do with them. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought Florida played really well the other night, all things considered. And I loved Mike White's halftime interview. You were in the building, so you weren't able to see it. I don't know if you've seen a clip of it subsequently, but um, you know, he was asked basically like, what's, you know, what's, uh, what's the problem, you know, with, you know, you think he was down 10 or whatever, like what's, what's happening. He said, well, they're really good and we're not as good as them. And that's just the simplest and best way to describe it. Like what he wanted to say, I think is like, we're, we, you know, we're, I'm kind of pleased. Like we're doing okay. There's some things we could do better, but like, what do you want us to do with them? Like I saw people on Twitter, uh, you know, like every time Kennard would knock down a shot, it was like, you can't leave Luke Kennard. Well, Okay. You you want to play Jason Tatum one on one? Good luck with that. I mean, what you uh, most college teams, like almost all college teams, can't hurt you from every position. Duke can hurt you from every position on the floor, and when they are operating, uh, uh, when we when they get to a point where they're operating at full strength, uh, I do think they're different than everybody else. I still like Kentucky's talent, but you touched on it. Uh, Duke doesn't just have elite level uh, freshman NBA talent. They've got awesome, experienced college players as well. Grayson Allen as a junior, 
uh, Luke Kennard as a sophomore, Emil Jefferson as a fifth-year senior. They check every box. Not unlike that 2012 Kentucky team checked every box. Elite-level freshman NBA prospects, but also enough enough veterans to balance out the roster. When Duke is when Duke is fully healthy, um, I, I think they they return to the clear favorite to win a national championship. I agree. And then I'll also add, you know, Tatum will be just as valuable on the defensive end. I think Matt Jones is going to be in the starting lineup all year. He's a top 20 defender in college basketball, in my opinion, and a really, you know, just another gray beard in the lineup. They've got a lot there. And even like, this is the wild thing. It's like Frank Jackson had to step in and do more earlier in the season than the Duke coaches were expecting. And he, even Jackson excelled. So even Jackson is, is similar to what, in my opinion, what Grayson was on that championship Duke team where Grayson was a freshman and at the time, you know, he was, you know, reputation five, five star recruit, very athletic, uh, would need a little time to grow. And then he kind of uh, blew up in the tournament in the final four when he stepped up and had a big game. Um, so it's kind of ridiculous how much they have here. And like, even like someone like Chase Jeter, who's going to get not a ton of burn, like Chase Jeter would be a starting player earning really good minutes and, and garnering good stats on 345 other teams in the country. So it's it's really this is this is what we're talking about when we go in the summer and we look at these recruits and we see the top recruits and when they're, and they're signing with players and and fans that don't get to see these guys or they might only see like a 2 minute YouTube, you know, compilation video. This is this was the expected outcome with Duke because we knew what they had coming back. We knew how good Jason Tatum could be. I'm telling you this guy's going to be even better. It would not shock me, by the way. This would not shock me at all, GP. Right now, we've got Kennard and Jefferson in the top 10. I'm telling you, like, those two dudes come February, and it wouldn't be anything against them. It's just what Duke has. If you told me that Tatum and Allen, or maybe Tatum and Giles, or Allen and Giles, were the two that were in the top 10 candidates for player of the year come February 5th, would totally 100% believe it because they simply have that much firepower i do think they'll get clipped again because the acc is going to be so good they got plenty of road games to play they've yet to play a road game but this this team has the number one offense in the country and by the way it built that it's it's sustained that for weeks now even before tatum came back and marquise got in uniform and we still don't have giles and allen's not playing well nearly as well as he should have so just it's it's good for the sport because duke's going to be so dominant People love to watch him so that they can hate him. I get that. Kennard was a little bit cocky on the floor. That'll only boost the vitriol toward this team. But they are ultimately really fun. And Kennard, I thought that he would have a big year, relatively speaking. I didn't think it would be anything like this. But it's it's really shown in a hurry how versatile he is on offense. Great foot movement. Terrific ability to see the floor anticipate how defenses are going to play him so he's really taking advantage right now of the talent that he has around him but i don't think it's just because he's got all these guys i think he is like legitimately playing himself into consideration of being uh, a respectable draft pick defensively he's certainly got some liabilities there but overall what he's done has been pretty impressive and yeah so duke now we wait and see the one other element here is Shashevsky was asked about Giles and his return. And for the first time in like a month, he, he gave up some some trade secrets here inside the building. And he said he hopes he's back by Christmas. And that would mean, I said it on Sunday's podcast, maybe the Tennessee State game on Monday, December 19th. If not that, maybe Wednesday, uh, the 21st against Elon. He's hoping. It's not a guarantee. But for Shashevsky to say that, I got to believe that like he's going to c- come back. 
I, I think at this point, if he's going public with that, it's still far enough away. Barring any just weird thing happening in practice, I think we will see Giles on the floor before Christmas because that means he gets at least one or two games in against bad competition, relatively speaking, before Duke opens ACC play on New Year's Eve at a good Virginia Tech team. It was encouraging to, to hear uh, that, yes, it looks like Giles is going to be playing before Christmas. Uh, it is worth pointing out that they expected him back before December 1st, initially. You know, right. when, when he had the other procedure in the preseason, um, you know, the timetable was, was, you know, late November. That's what they were aiming for. So he has not um, recovered as well as they had hoped on the day that he had the procedure because he's going to be about a month late getting back to the court if he gets back to the court when they're now thinking he's going to get back on the court. And if I were an NBA uh, front office executive, like that's, that's something that I would have jotted down uh, somewhere. Ultimately, uh, for Giles, it's, you know, everything as it relates to draft stock is going to come down to, um, you know, to, to the medicals. Like, you know, what, what, do, they, what do NBA uh, doctors see when they look at his knees? But um, if he plays to his potential and there are no red flags with his knees, it's still not out of the question. I don't think that he can be the number one overall pick in the NBA draft. Um, I'd be surprised, but I don't think it's completely out of the question. Um, speaking of the NBA draft, I've, I'm doing a 2017, uh, I don't, uh, I guess it's a, I don't guess it's a mock draft cause I'm not assigning players to teams cause we don't have a draft order. I'm just sort of putting together a big board of the top 30 prospects. What you said about Kennard is, is absolutely true. I, you know, I, I, I don't just do this off the top of my head. I mean, I do it with my own instincts, but I also reach out to, you know, NBA scouts that I have relationships with and bounce ideas off of them. And, um, I had one tell me, you you should have Kennard in your top 30 right now. Like he has shown himself to be, um, a legitimate NBA prospect, whether he actually goes in the first round or not, we'll see, but he will be in my top 30 and I've got Jason Tatum going number one. Uh, what's what's interesting is that you could go a lot of different directions at the top, and I think this will be true um, even heading into the draft. You know, Josh Jackson is a reasonable choice. Markel Fultz is a reasonable choice. Uh, Dennis Smith is a reasonable choice. Um, but I, I went with Tatum. I, I think like nine of the first ten players are come off the board, probably going to be freshmen. I, I think almost half of them could be in play for the number one pick, but I went with Tatum. You think that's ridiculous? Do you think I'm reaching, or could he really be the number one pick in the draft? No, it could really happen, and I actually think this is going to be something that plays out throughout the season, after the season, um, barring, see, because Fultz's team is going to be problematic, um, so I think that's going to prevent him from being a surefire number one. I love Dennis Smith. It I think Dennis Smith. It didn't prevent I, Ben Simmons. I, I know that, but Fultz is not, doesn't have the size and uh, dynamic play to his game that Simmons had. I know what you're saying. But and Simmons, the only thing with him was his shot and Fultz's shot. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, but what I'm saying is the talent around uh, within Fultz's class is nowhere close to what Simmons was. So Simmons didn't have as much competition within that freshman class as what Fultz is dealing with. So when you look at that, plus the fact that Fultz isn't you know six nine and a half and can run point guard, I think that's why it's not going to be a clear cut uh, call. And so throughout the season. Um, We'll have all the unless like Giles comes back healthy and is like dominant as hell because uh, that's the only way I could see we, us getting to June and being like, yeah, it's going to be Giles barring. And I don't think that's going to happen. So what I think we're going to have is, you know, five or six guys really just go in and out of being the quote unquote favorite of being the number one pick. Tatum is fine. I think Tatum is going to be 
a multi-time, a multi-time all-star franchise level player who is going to average well over 20 points at the NBA level for his career. I, th- I think that highly of him. I think he's refined already, um, has just a terrific mid-range game, um, has an aggressiveness to him that I actually think might be understated because just of how smooth he is overall, but he's long, can play defense. So I agree with you, GP, um, but I do think that throughout the season and then after it, when we get to the evaluation period and doctors are looking at things like Harry Giles' knee and Dennis Smith, who went through an injury a year ago and stuff like that, we might have some mystery to who's going to go number one overall, but I have no issue with Tatum as you know the number one on a top 100 prospects board right now. Let's spend a few minutes on Markel Fultz because they played last night. Washington did uh, against Gonzaga. It got ran off the court. It was ugly from the beginning. Fultz is terrific, and he's having a terrific season. He's averaging 23 points per game, uh, 7.1 rebounds, 5.9 assists. He's shooting 49% from three-point range. He's awesome. His team stinks. They've lost to TCU twice, lost to Yale, got run off the court by Gonzaga. Um, I'm just, I'm already depressed about his one year in college because it's not going to uh, result in in Markel Fultz being uh, on a nationally relevant team or even a respectable team. It's not going to result in him being in the NCAA tournament. And for the second straight year, uh, we've got a guy who could reasonably go number one in the draft, sort of just wasting. you know, wasting a season of college playing at Washington. And it's just like, I, you know, I, I, I'm not a, uh, ultimately I think young people should do whatever they want to do as it, as it relates to where they choose to go to school, even one and done guys who are only going to be in school for a year. But if it were my own son, I wouldn't let him waste. I wouldn't let him go to LSU and waste away or Washington and waste away. Like, what is the point? If you're only going to do this for a year, it seems like you should, uh, pick a school that where there's already enough pieces in place that you can make them good uh, or better, like certainly better, good enough, or, you know, d- d- pair up with a couple of other elite prospects and go anywhere you want and make them good for the one year. But we've seen it over and over again now. It doesn't matter how awesome you are. If you go to a bad basketball program, you're just going to be a part of a bad basketball program. And here it is for the second straight year. It was Simmons at LSU. Now it's false at Washington. I hope the class of... Uh, 2019 class of 2020 the next kids coming up are paying attention to this because uh, it is always preferable at least from my perspective uh, when the elite NBA prospects are playing for relevant teams and Markel Fultz right now not only is on the west coast which sort of hides him you know more than you know somebody who plays in the eastern time zone uh, but he's on the west coast playing for a bad team and you know he's going to lose more games than he probably wins this year and then be off to the NBA, and it'll be a, a completely forgettable one year of college, which is sort of depressing. Yeah, we probably won't have a Mark Fultz segment on this podcast for more than a month because Washington doesn't really play a relevant game. They have an important game uh, this coming Sunday at home against the Nevada team that could end up winning the Mountain West. Uh, losing that would be, um, I can't say rock bottom because who knows what's going to happen with Romar's team, but um, the at-large discussion is it's not dead because if they – if they go nuts in the Pac-12, they're gonna they're not obviously going be. Nuts in the Pac-12. They're not I know nuts. that, GP. Can you just can you let me set it set it up here? I'm just saying, uh, losing to Nevada is just uh, you're pr- you're practically in the ground at that point. And what's interesting about Fultz is, you know, he is from Maryland, so Romar was in on his recruitment early, um, and Fultz stayed true to Romar. And it's amazing that a kid that uh, 
was around, you know, a Maryland program and plenty of really good schools up and down the East Coast opted to go cross country and, and do this. And yeah, it's um, it's it's dude, it's just a bummer because he's really good. Like I did my freshman right first freshman of the year rankings and they're different from player of the year because player of the year is very much more connected to uh, being on a very successful team with, a, you know, a number one or number two seed or number three. You know, McDermott was player of the year. Creighton was a three seed that year. You're usually on a three seed or better if you're going to win player of the year almost always. Freshman of the year isn't the same because freshmen historically are not asked to do as much as guys that are winning player of the year awards. And or it's always statistically based. Like Ben Simmons didn't really have a chance at player of the year last year, but he won freshman of the year. Fultz is the best freshman in the country so far right now, statistically with what he's doing. But the team around him, as you rightfully said, stinks. Romar, listen, man, I had... I remember like five, six years ago, I had people on Twitter. This was like when I didn't even have a massive following. And I don't have one now, by the way. But I'm talking like I had like 5,000 followers. I remember Washington fans back then when Romar was still – he had been coming off some NCAA tournament appearances. Like back in 2012 and 2013 when they didn't get there, I had Washington fans telling me like he's, it's just been too long. He's got to go. This has run its course. He is still there, okay, and he's got a really good class coming in next year. I got – Unless this like totally craters on him and they win like 10 games, I got to figure he's returning. But listen, he deserves to be criticized for having all of this talent and failing to do things with it. It's no coach has had more NBA prospects over the past six, seven years and not done anything with it than Romar. And I'm including Johnny Jones in that, by the way, because even Johnny Jones has made the tournament uh, since 2011. You cannot say the same thing for Lorenzo Romar. So. Any criticism thrown his way at this point is totally validated because that team, listen, our, our, our good buddy and former colleague Sam Vecini rightfully just was roasting Romar and Washington on Twitter on Wednesday night because they don't play defense. Like, there are some things when you watch games and, and you would need a coach to kind of walk you through some tape to show, like, here's what's happening here and here's what you might not see in terms of this action on offense or what they're doing to switch here on defense with Washington. It's so blatantly obvious. And the, the signature play was how, uh, Pajemic Karnowski basically dunked on a run out, beat every single Washington player. And by the way, Washington is super athletic. Okay. Karnowski is seven foot one, 300 bills and is beating these guys down the floor for a breakaway dunk. Like there's no dam- more damning video evidence than that. So, um, I guess, you know, it's just, it's kind of a joke right now. Washington should be better than this. They, and they're not. Um, I don't know how many more times we'll talk about him this year. Fultz is a, is a wonder. He's really fun. He's going to put up games this year that you, that are worth seeing. But it's going to, at the same time, if they're going to be losing 94 to 78, then what's the damn point? So well, I, I don't think it will affect his draft stock. But, yeah, I mean, that's just a long-winded way of saying that um, he, he probably chose the wrong school in terms of winning but he's going to he's going to have his chances to put up terrific numbers if if that's if that's what he cares about then he certainly is going to go hog wild well from the uh you know category of what's the point i think everybody assumes that lorenzo's going to get another year next year because as you noted he's got this amazing recruiting class signed that includes and is highlighted by uh, michael porter junior on the other hand what's the point if if getting like you know they had two first round picks last year didn't result in anything he's got more Kel Fultz now doesn't result in anything you know the point the the only great thing about getting great recruits is the idea that you'll be great with them but he's about to miss the NCAA tournament for the sixth straight year go try to find examples of other power five coaches who who get another season 
after missing the NCAA tournament six straight years. They almost do not exist. And Super Bowl. Yeah. And, right now it's just Romar. Shout out to De- Rob Doster who told me this. And shout out to Devin Downey who did not tell me this. Shout out to Devin That Downey. Pat Chambers, Romar, and Brad Brownell at Clemson, uh, Chambers is at Penn State, are the only coaches in the Power Five leagues right now that have gone five consecutive years without making a tournament. Um, and I got to figure if Chambers and Brownell don't do it this year, I, I, it would be it would be a tough sell to bring them back. Maybe they do, but it is it's not common at all within the past two and a half decades to go six years in a big league and continue to have your job if you don't make at least one NCAA tournament in that span. Well, at least for Pat, it's at Penn State. I mean, you can just sort of shrug your shoulders and go, what are you, you going to do? You know, you're, you're the head coach of Penn State. Like, good luck. Um, they should build a statue if you get to the NCAA tournament. Um, but at Washington, with pros? And I like Lorenzo a lot, and I like his staff. But, like, so this isn't a fun conversation to have. But, um, you know, like, I mean, there have been some really high-level players come through that program, and it just, at least recently, hasn't resulted in, in anything of, of quality. And I, I was hoping, probably against common sense, but hoping this, this season would be uh, different. But so far, through eight games, it is not different. They're 4-4, four and four, um, and they've only played. You know, I, I don't want to be dismissive of Yale and TCU. So, like, they're, let's just say they're 4-4 four and four with losses to TCU, Yale, and then a blowout loss to, to Gonzaga. Um, meantime, uh, while uh, that happened last night, Kentucky also played for the first time since losing uh, to UCLA at home. Uh, they jumped out to a 21-4 lead on Valpo. Uh, Valpo never threatened. As I wrote at CBSSports.com, it was really after about – eight minutes the only question was is Kentucky going to win by 20 or 30 Uh, they won by 24 Um, whatever Uh, they shot it poorly from the perimeter again and they're now shooting Kentucky has 32.2 percent from three-point range which ranks I believe 253rd in America does that concern you at all to be clear it's not going to prevent Kentucky from beating Valpo's brains in or most teams brains in it's not going to prevent them from winning the sec blowing out most people because they're so physically overwhelming and athletically overwhelming uh for most opponents but it terrifies me uh if i were john calipari to to go into a single elimination ncaa tournament and knowing that i was going to say one bad shooting night but it would actually just be like you know one normal shooting night for you could actually end your season, that you could have a Final Four team, perhaps a national championship team. Um, but, you know, by the time you get to certainly the Elite Eight, you're going to be playing somebody that you're, you're, you're likely, unlikely to just overwhelm. And if you throw up one of those four of 24s, which is like not out of character for them from three-point range, like you can get caught. And um, I, I don't know that this is fixable because shooting tends to be like, you know, do, do you have good shooters or not? And, you know, Derek Willis hasn't shot the ball as well as he shot it last season. Um, he should be better. He made two last night for only the second time this season. So, you know, I think the best version of Kentucky is him being a stretch four and knocking down shots um, from the perimeter. But, like, he's got to prove that he can do it consistently. Malik Monk is a streaky shooter. I don't know that he's a great shooter. And outside of that, like, where is it on the roster? So it looks like this is going to be an issue for Kentucky all season. And again, it, it, their issues are smaller than most people's issues. They're going to win the SEC and stay ranked in the top ten, I believe, most of the season, if not all of the season. 
but I, I would prefer to have a decent shooting team going into the NCAA tournament as opposed to what it appears they have. I agree, and I'll be short with this. Um, the only teams that were considered uh, legitimately in the Final Four conversation entering the season that are worse from three are Xavier, Louisville, and Oregon. Kentucky's better than them, but not by much. But those are the four teams that uh, could get bitten uh, pretty badly down the road uh, if this continues. Achilles heel, yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, but I've said that before, and I've said it on the podcast, just in terms of Monk's shooting, it can't just be him because he definitely is streaky. Um, I love what Fox has done. But Kentucky, they're about at the point here where they're showing you what they are. Um, if, if you're shooting at a 33% clip from three-point range more than a quarter into your season, that's not going to change uh, on the whole to being you know 40 plus percent as a team it just it just won't now they they can incrementally get better and maybe they get up to 36 37 percent by the time we get to march it, that's certainly possible um i'm not necessarily seeing it but yeah that they can overwhelm teams in so many other ways right. gp um let's check back in on that say a month from now see what see what they've done in the since we've had this conversation uh see how it's changed um because there are probably going to be a couple of games where Monk doesn't necessarily bail them out, but maybe, you know, balls out in a big way and they win definitively, and that's a, a catalyzing factor. Uh, but I got to see more than that, and I, and I do agree with you on Willis being a stretch for. Uh, two other results from Wednesday night that were interesting. Butler lost at Indiana State. Um, like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, feels a lot like Indiana losing at Fort Wayne. Uh, tip of the hat to Chris Holtman for scheduling that game. Um, but like playing your in-state uh, lower-level uh, rivals, if you will, uh, hasn't gone well for the uh, traditional uh, basketball schools in in the state of Indiana. Indiana's got that loss at Fort Wayne on its resume. Now Butler has a loss at Indiana State. But um, I don't think I dropped the Bulldogs very much in the top 25 and one this morning because um, I, that that wasn't a surprising result uh, for me. Uh, and Xavier's loss at Colorado wasn't a surprising result either but are you surprised that Xavier isn't operating at a high level we talked about this on Sunday's podcast because Xavier fans were frustrated that I had dropped the Musketeers so uh, drastically I think 12 spots in the top 25 and one after that 15 point loss at Baylor and my explanation was sort of um, no I don't typically drop somebody 12 spots for losing a road game to a top 10 team but um, I felt like I'd had ba uh, Xavier uh, a little too high for a while, and I just used that opportunity to adjust to a more accurate ranking, which was 18th in the country because, uh, yeah, Xavier had beaten everybody and only lost to Baylor, but they were in a close game with Lehigh. They went to overtime with Missouri. Now they've got a loss at Colorado, which is nothing to be embarrassed about. Colorado's fine, but uh, this is a team that some people had in the preseason top five, and even though they have a 7-2 and two record with two true road losses, which isn't the worst thing in the world, they don't look that good right now. Are you surprised that they don't look that good right now? And how much of it is, is, is if at all, is it that they don't have Miles Davis? I think some of it is not having Miles Davis, who's been indefinitely suspended because he, I mean, this has been reported, but yeah. he had issues with an ex-girlfriend uh, to the point where, um, you know, restraining orders had to be, to be issued. And he was, uh, you know, Acting in ways that he will, I'm sure, if he doesn't already, uh, find highly regrettable, uh, certainly when he has more life experience behind him. So, 
don't know when Davis is coming back. I mean, for all we know, Chris Mack knows that this is going to be an entirely non-conference suspension, and he plays against Providence on the 20th is back, or we, or who knows. So not having Davis, who's a good shooter, and from just purely from a basketball perspective, definitely rounds out this team. Um, yes, I think that they will be better if and when he returns. I hear what you're saying uh, with Xavier on the whole. I'm still a believer in this team in terms of being uh, right there with Creighton. Um, in the notch below Nova, I, I think it will wind up being a pretty solid season overall for them. Um, JP Mercura, I think, is going to continue to get even better, and I just I think Sumner and Blewett will be strong on the whole. Um, no loss in losing, I mean, no shame in losing at Baylor, and then a loss against Colorado, only by two points on the road in the elevation. They weren't favored to win the game, so they were. They, they, they were. One and they half, were. Yeah, they were one and a half point favorite. I, I think it closed it. Minus one and a half, something like that. But it was a, it was basically a toss up. Oh, yeah, basically a toss up. I'm actually surprised Xavier was favored though, considering um, all the things we've mentioned. So, but yeah, dude, winning on the road against a power conference opponent that's not named like Rutgers, St. John's, or Washington State, it's not easy in college basketball. So, I, I don't I don't begrudge them at all. Real quick on Butler, you're absolutely right, and I know Holtman was concerned about the game just in terms of because it's tough like dude it's it's hard and i tweeted out like the 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 important thing for the committee and i actually i saw mark hollis uh at the jimmy v on tuesday when for the duke florida game and all that and i spoke with him for a few minutes the important thing for the committee to realize is how difficult it is to win on the road and for them to analytically be able to put these uh wins and losses into perspective and uh, for just for one example like Butler has a win on a neutral quarter over Vanderbilt. And Vanderbilt's a much better team than Indiana State. But it is statistically more difficult to win a road game at Indiana State than it is to beat Butler, than it is to beat Vanderbilt on a neutral court. Mm-hmm. And so those kind of differences, and this is kind of nitty-gritty, but I do very much enjoy this stuff in terms of projecting the tournament, seeding and selection. Those are the things that will wind up being important and mattering when we're talking about the teams that get in that get bubbles, the teams that get one seeds. So I think that's the next big step for the committee is to start realizing that beating a team ranked 125th in Ken Palm on the road, that's tougher than beating a team ranked 55th on a neutral court. It's that much harder to win on the road. The data has supported it for years and years and years. And I think they're coming around on it, but it's just one of those things where we probably need to discuss a little bit more, dedicate a few more articles to it, make coaches aware of it. And I, I texted Holtman earlier in the week. I was like, this is going to be a tough game, but just, you know, you should get credit for, just like Crean did, for scheduling these things because it's it's better to have coaches chasing the best possible resumes, and that includes scheduling on the road outside of your conference when you're not mandated to do it, but you should and will be rewarded for doing it. Uh, before we get out of here, last thing, um, big game this weekend it's on CBS. That's America's most watched network. It's the network of stars. 11 a.m. tip uh, central. Uh, that means noon Eastern. It is undefeated and top ranked Villanova against undefeated and 23rd ranked Notre Dame. Uh, can Notre Dame upset Villanova Norlander? Give me your expert analysis or at least provide a pick so that when I'm writing about this for CBSSports.com, I can write uh, accurately uh, that we pick the game. Yeah. Um, I'm this, so this game is randomly, and I don't know why GP. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But this game is in Newark. I, I don't know, know why. I know why. I know everything. It's the yeah. it's the never forget tribute classic. 
That's right. That's right. This is this is a new thing. I think it's just this year that this came out. Yes, the Never Forget tribute classic. What exactly are we supposed to never forget as it relates to this? It's not. It's actually this is a game taking place on December tenth. That's uh, in honor of September eleventh. Um, what? That's but yeah. I don't. It's. I'm sure it's a terrific cause, but I think yeah, there are. There's a big time nonprofit charity associated with it, and. Um, so that's why, but yeah, it is. I feel like if you're gonna tell me never to forget something, we, we should we should at least know what we never need to forget. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm I'm almost positive. Particularly when it's in the particularly when it's in the same week as Pearl Harbor. That's I, also that's my, true. I, my my yeah. my gut was to guess never to forget Pearl Harbor, but now we're never I, I never to forget 9/11. I'm never gonna forget either one of them. Um, but I just didn't and know. Don't what you, you and don't you dare forget about that Alamo while we're at it, okay? I won't forget about the Alamo either. I'm never gonna forget that. We any other any other laughs we want to have at the expense of national tragedies? No, no, no. It's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not a joke. I'm just. I'm just. It is. It is weird that it, we're having this. You know, in the second week of December. That's all. But college basketball doesn't take place in September. So if you're gonna have it during the season, you know what? It's probably better than not having it at all. I agree. Uh, I agree. But the. But the Newark thing, yeah, the, the neutral court's a little weird. As for the game, uh, I posted the most underrated, overrated, and properly rated undefeated teams on the site earlier this week. You can go ahead and read that or bring up the CBS Sports app, uh, which is a terrific reading interface. I have you cross-promoting. There we go. I have Notre Dame as an overrated, undefeated team. Uh, they are 9-0. and They have not played... A tremendous schedule, to say the least. You haven't played a tremendous schedule, to say the least. Oh, I've played a, I've played a terrific schedule, man. <laughs> I, play, I want Bama. Okay, I, my schedule. You can't even, you can't even touch my schedule right now. Notre Dame, it's even worse than it was earlier in the week. Um, it's three thirty-four overall. Um, now they have a couple of wins against top one hundred opponents: Colorado, Northwestern on a neutral, defeated Iowa, who kind of stinks at home. And they got a win at home over those pesky Mastodons of Fort Wayne, who, of course, have taken down Indiana. But there's a, there's plenty of garbage there overall. Bonzi Colson has been awesome. I mean, I told you you should consider him for a top 10 player of the year. If he goes off and Notre Dame plays it closer, wins, uh, Bonzi Colson should be in a top 10 player of the year discussion legitimately at that point. Uh, Colson's good. VJ Beecham, Steve Asturia, all solid players. I don't buy Notre Dame as a top 25 team just yet. I've, I'm going to say Villanova wins this. I'm going to say double digits. Give me a, mm-hmm. give me Cats by by 12. I'm big time on Jay Wright's team even still. Um, rightfully the number one team in America and uh, certainly in, in a good position to kind of, you know, not dominate the Big East, but I think win the Big East uh, definitively again this season. I'll take Villanova as a winner to remain undefeated and top ranked. I, I think Notre Dame keeps it close enough to cover. I imagine the points better be something like uh, Villanova minus seven, eight points. I would take Notre Dame plus the points, but I think Villanova is going to win the game. And I believe at this point now um, they're at 15 straight wins dating back to the last season, of course, because they lose the Big East championship game, but then win six in the NCAA tournament. They're nine and zero now. So with an opportunity to, to win for the 16th straight time dating back to last season. I think they will do it, but Notre Dame covers. And among the other things you should never forget is that you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. That's the best way to get the latest episodes as quickly as possible. So please do that. Thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you again uh, either late Sunday or early uh, Monday. I promise. Till then, take care.